So for our sermon series, we've been going through the book of Acts, which describes the expansion of the church, of Jesus' kingdom of shalom, meaning peace, beauty, goodness, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And one major theme of Acts is that this expansion was unhindered despite barriers from within the church and barriers from outside the church. One important barrier that uh, we're going to look at today from within is this from verse 1 of your text. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the, the Gentile brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. You see the same barrier again articulated in verse 5. Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them, the Gentiles, in order, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So the barrier for today is what the New Testament refers to as salvation by works of the law. A person must keep the law to be saved. Now what does that really mean? Uh, we use that phrase a lot uh, in the Protestant church especially. Um, first, let's talk about salvation. What does it mean to be saved? Acts assumes three things along with the Bible that give a foundation for this is One is that God is our creator, and he is king and ruler of all people. Second, that God, our creator king, is just. He is a standard of behavior, a law that he holds everybody to, and he demands allegiance. And then three, all of us humans have grievously violated God's law over and over again, and have warranted God's displeasure, and therefore must face rejection, death, and eternal punishment at God's hand, as a result of his justice. These are the assumptions behind the phrase, to be saved, that we need salvation from our daily sin against God, from our guilt and shame against God, uh, our guilt and shame before God, and the judgment and punishment of God that's coming. And so you may be in here and have some doubts about your own need of salvation of this kind. It's not a common belief in our wider culture, so that would make sense. But thankfully, uh, this is actually one of the places where the Bible says that we have concrete evidence. This universal standard that God has, this law that you and I violated, is actually written on our hearts, says the Bible. So then you have internal evidence of this standard. Here's what it is, according to the Bible, is that you have a voice or a feeling in your head all the time telling you what you should and shouldn't be doing. Take, for instance, a silly example Should I eat a third donut hole this morning or not? I've had to. Should I have a third? Instinctually, I would like to eat it because it's delicious. Uh, But perhaps I would feel guilty or ashamed if I did. I might wonder, is it selfish? I probably should share the donuts with the other kids in our congregation. I shouldn't be selfish. Notice a law in my head. People shouldn't be selfish. Um... I also might think, it's not really caring for my body well to eat it. I should care for my body. Notice another law, uh, people should care for their bodies. But there's a lot going on in the service this morning. Uh, I'm expending calories up here. uh, And I was good yesterday, and I deserve it. Uh, So I should eat it. Notice another law, people should get what they deserve. All this internal conversation to figure out, does this action disobey a real internal standard in my head because if so I could feel guilty again it's a silly example 
and I am going to eat it. Um, but if you're like me, you're the kind of being that makes decisions based on shoulds, on internal laws, and tries to sift through those to figure out if you're violating a real standard that could cause you to feel guilty. I've never eaten during a sermon before. It's not. Um, also notice there was something broken about my process. Those shoulds disagreed at times. There were competing voices in my head, and some of them were selfish. All the shoulds I thought or felt were not necessarily the real standard. It was kind of hard to discern, discern what it was in the midst of my rationalizations. Let me get some water here. This is taking longer than usually. Um, all right. This would inevitably mean at times... I don't feel guilty about something that I should feel guilty about. Or maybe other times, I feel guilty about something that I shouldn't feel guilty about because it's my own idea in my head rather than an actual uh, internal standard. So my process for following this law is broken. This phenomenon happens with every human decision. Should I help this stranger? Should I cheat on my test? Should I tell the truth to my friend? Should you... Give me back my toy car that you stole. Uh, Yes, it's right, it's fair, it's consistent with the real standard that you and I have. Now the Bible makes sense of this phenomenon for us. It says this law was originally put in our heads by God, but all of us have disobeyed this law over and over again. True for me. On top of that, it says we judge others by the law's standards, even though we often don't live up to them ourselves. We're hypocrites. We say, you definitely shouldn't have a third donut. You should share with others. While all the while, I've definitely eaten a third donut. True for me. Lastly, the Bible says, over time, we have watered down and changed the law in our heads to better fit our own sinful desires. So the law standard that you have now is not nearly the standard that God actually has. Also true for me. We saw the confusion with the donuts. So to summarize... All of us are born into the situation of constantly disobeying an internal standard, a law that's put there by God, and all of us feel guilt and shame as a result of that. Therefore, all of us on some level need salvation from this human condition, from the internal standard, from our hypocrisy, from our guilt, and from our shame. Now, there's a lot of solutions that you have been offered today to your problem. Uh, One common one now is this. There's not really a real internal standard So you just need to change whatever law is in your head. It carries no authority. Just convince yourself that any potentially disobedient behavior is actually right and good. My lie is actually for their sake. Therefore, it's good. I shouldn't feel bad about that. Or another solution you might hear is, you just need to relax that law for yourself a little bit. Don't apply it so strictly to yourself. Think about your story, your parents, your hard life. You shouldn't be held to that standard in this moment. You were lied to first. You come from a family of liars. Don't feel bad about lying. Or a third solution you might be offered. You did violate a real standard, but your problem is your lack of forgiveness for yourself. Once you lie, forgive yourself, and then don't feel bad and move on. These are some modern solutions to the guilt and shame problem. But for the reader of the Bible, the problem with these solutions is that those feelings of guilt and shame are not our main problem. Actually, human feelings of guilt are a lot of the time indicators of a divine reality, a reality that before God, you are guilty. 
You were actually on death row because you committed treason. You violated the real law of the sovereign king, and he will hold you accountable. You have no authority to relax or change his law or to forgive yourself. You're a death row inmate, and thus you need salvation. Salvation not just from your feelings of guilt and shame, but salvation from your actual law-breaking, your actual guilt, your actual impending death and divine punishment. That's biblical salvation. And if we can somehow find salvation from all of that, we believe the feelings of guilt and shame will be changed over time, too, to reflect this new reality. That's a long description of what it means to be saved. Now, what does it mean one must keep the law to be saved? For many Israelites in Jesus' time, especially the Pharisees, the solution to our salvation problem was obedience to the law of Moses, especially circumcision being the first big point of obedience. Now, the law of Moses was, in general, a historical articulation by God of our internal standard. It was reflected in the Ten Commandments and in the outworking of those commandments and the rest of the law. And the Pharisees thought if we keep this law well enough, um, they could be saved. The logic is, we, hey, we broke the law. That was what got us into our problem. And so let's solve it by just keeping the law. Uh, Gentiles have this strategy too. Uh, it would look like if I could just be good enough the rest of my life and my good deeds could outweigh my bad deeds, then I should be okay in the judgment. Often this looks like in practice, um, I just need to be better than most of the people around me according to my own judgment. That is salvation by works. And notice this was a barrier to the church, a different competing way of salvation than the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus was according to uh, Paul, who was a converted Pharisee, by the way, um, Romans 4, that the righteousness of God, being right with God, had been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Meaning one could be saved apart from your own works or goodness through risking it all on Jesus instead. And this clash between the two ways led to the first major presbytery meeting in Acts in our passage here. You might be wondering, what's a presbytery meeting, Harrison? Notice in the first few verses of our text, Paul and Barnabas deem this way too important of a matter to figure out on their own. Everyone's eternal standing with God rests on this decision. So the elders of many churches all got together in Jerusalem to talk through it and make a ruling on it. And they sent that ruling out to the other Gentile churches to live by. Our word presbyter comes from the Greek word for elder. Presbytery is a meeting of elders in many churches, which is what we have here. Uh, it shows us that some uh, individual uh, some decisions individual churches can rule on, and some all the whole church must rule on. And our Presbyterian government is actually patterned after this passage and a lot of others like it. Um, this decision today is definitely a whole church kind of matter. So for the, for the sermon today, I'm going to make a case for you that is made by the apostles at this Presbytery meeting, which you and I need reminding of daily. For your salvation, you must risk it all on Jesus not your good works. For your salvation, you must risk it all on Jesus. I'm going to submit three evidences to you to support the statement that were submitted at their meeting. The failure of man's works for salvation, the success of God's Son for salvation, and the authority of God's Word for salvation. Failure of man's works, success of God's Son, and the authority of God's Word for salvation. First, let's pray. 
Father, um, you know how our hearts are so quick to try to save ourselves. It's so scary for that to be out of our control. Um, Lord, but you've told us many times in this passage again today that it is. And so, Lord, for those of us in here that are really wrestling uh, with trying to save ourselves, Lord, would you um, give us these arguments in a, in a way that can actually change our hearts? Uh, through your word, Lord, would, you, would we be able to, to rest in Jesus, walk out of here, resting knowing that our salvation is in his, in his hands and that we're going to be okay? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, uh, the failure of man's works for salvation. Look in verse 10 in your bulletin or Bible of this passage. So Peter gives the first major recorded speech in this meeting. And we're going to look at what he starts with in the second point. But skip to verse 10 where he addresses the failure of man's works. He says, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So a yoke is a a beam of wood that you would put around two animals' necks to restrict their movement as you plow behind them. Peter's saying the law is like a yoke. And it's a yoke that neither us nor our Jewish ancestors throughout the Old Testament have ever been able to carry So don't put that same unbearable yoke on the Gentiles. In other words, we were unable to attain salvation through the law. Why should we ask them to do that? Now the question is, why weren't they able to attain salvation? Why weren't they able to bear the yoke? The New Testament gives us three reasons. The first one is that the law was not bad, but the people were. New Testament and Old Testament in many places say the law is exceedingly good. But the people, on the other hand, no one does good. No one seeks God. No one is righteous. All have fallen short. So what Peter's saying here is not that the yoke of the law was too heavy, but that we, the oxen, have proven to be too diseased, too weak, too disobedient, and too stubborn to carry it. So the law was not bad, but the people were. Second, the law was actually never meant to merit salvation. It was a way of living in response to salvation. The Ten Commandments start with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you should have no other gods before me. God's saying, I saved you graciously. Now live this way in response. So the Pharisees were just flat out wrong. The law was never meant to merit their salvation. It was a way of living in response. And as Christians, it's actually very useful to us still. According to the New Testament, it it does three things. It shows us our sin and need of Jesus. Paul says in Romans, through the law came knowledge of sin. Um, It restrains our behavior. Uh, Paul calls it in Galatians our guardian. Um, And lastly, it guides a believer in the way he should go as a light to his feet. So none of those reasons involve the law being a means of your salvation. It was just never meant to do that. So two, it was never meant to merit salvation, but a a way of living response. And then three, uh, the punishment for our sins could never be erased by our good works. The reason being, your debt is way too big and your works are not that good. Uh, It's like you stole $300 million and your one month of community service picking up trash is not going to make you even. Your debt is so big that even after you do your community service your whole life, Jesus says, you're still to say, I'm an unworthy servant. I've only done my duty. 
plus your best works as a sinner are defiled. Isaiah famously said our best work, righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. They are tainted with our sinful motives, our poor execution, our divided hearts. The punishment for our sin can never be erased by our good works. So because of those three reasons, man's works were an absolute failure in gaining salvation. So as an image of our situation before God, I'm going to carry this image to the sermon. It's like you're, you're in a burning building on the eighth floor. Uh, you're stuck, awaiting death, and in need of salvation. Peter is arguing, we've seen a lot of people try to save themselves of their own devices to go down the stairs, but we have watched every one of them burn and die. None were able to save themselves. And there's actually foundational issues with this strategy. The stairway is given away. There's a five-floor gap. Not to mention, all of us are super weak. We're coughing down smoke, and we can barely breathe. Don't require of these Gentiles a strategy that's killed every single person before. We've got to look for another way. And here's the problem. In the church, salvation by works is a very commonly practiced belief. It can take a lot of forms, but it often starts like this. God won't love me unless I'm doing a ton of stuff for him. And that mindset leads to a sort of pattern of life. Some weeks, God loves and accepts me when I'm reading my Bible, being nice to my brother, and generally being better than most of the people around me. Other weeks, God rejects me because I'm binging Netflix, punching my brother, and being worse than those around me. The assumption on the good weeks also follows that when I'm doing tons of stuff for God, he's obligated to love me, to give me good things. In fact, I'm feeling hurt that God has sent something bad for me in my life after all I've done for him. I've been the good person I'm supposed to be. And then even if you're able to be good in your own estimation, it culminates in this insidious, prideful mindset. I go to church most weeks. I tithe 10%. I volunteer with the kids. I go to serve in Greensboro. I don't have any grievous sexual sin. And for my job, I help people. My faults are only a few. Thank you, God, I'm not like that person over there. Notice the implicit belief under all of that that I can right my wrongs with God via my own filthy rags. I trust in me. I'm taking my life into my own hands, and I'm going down the stairs. But Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Peter says, no one's ever made it. Much better people than you haven't made it. Don't risk your soul on your own goodness. You're much worse off than you think. If you wrestle with this, as do I, we have to look at the Ten Commandments and then Jesus' explanation of them in the Sermon on the Mount and be reminded of how you break every one of those every day. Not to mention that with your pharisaical thoughts, we add self-righteousness and pride and judgmentalism and legalism to the rest of our sin. And if we don't repent and turn to Jesus, at the judgment we're going to realize that we're not enough. In fact, especially in the times when we thought we were enough, we were way worse off than the other person over there who humbly knew their own sin. This is the failure of man's works for salvation. If you identify with that struggle, don't worry, because there's another way. And that leads us to point two, the success of God's Son for salvation. Look with me at the beginning of Peter's speech now, starting in, in verse 7. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, 
You know that in the early days God has made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between them and us, having cleansed their hearts by faith. This is the success of God's Son for salvation. Peter's referring back to a situation with Gentile Cornelius. In Acts 10, God gave Peter a dream and then led Peter to a Gentile Cornelius' house. Um, a Gentile who was not circumcised did not uh, keep the law of Moses. And God had Peter preach salvation through faith in Jesus to that Gentile and his family. And then a miracle happened. God filled all those Gentiles with his Holy Spirit, cleansing their hearts by faith, Peter says, meaning not by works. Peter is arguing this. God himself has borne witness. He has clearly demonstrated through his power that people can be made right with him and saved through faith in Jesus alone. Paul and Barnabas, in their argument, argue the same thing. In verse 12, they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Meaning, again, God himself has borne witness to this. He has shown us that he accepts wholeheartedly this way of salvation through Jesus. Now, if you're a Jew, you might be wondering, how? How, though? How is salvation through the Son more successful than the works of the law? The rest of the New Testament tells us. Remember the problems we had with the law? We couldn't bear the yoke. We were too weak, diseased, and stubborn. But Jesus was obedient to the point of death on a cross. He knew no sin. He carried the yoke of the law perfectly and was the only man to do so. And second, remember the law was never meant to merit your salvation. Jesus was meant by God to merit your salvation. He was sent by God into the world exactly for that reason your salvation. And then three, remember your works couldn't erase your $300 million debt, but Jesus' sacrifice could. His blood was worth way more than your debt was. And he could spill that blood for you, pay for it so that you could go free. And your good works are defiled, remember, but his good works are not defiled. His were perfect before God. And he is trading places with you. Uh, His becoming sin that you might become the righteousness of God means that God can look at you and say, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So Jesus does everything the law couldn't do, was never meant to do. So back to the, um, oh, so Jesus can can bear the weight of the law. He can pay your debt. He can give you genuinely good works. Um, and, and Peter's saying the worthiness of Jesus is evidenced um, in the law-breaking Gentiles who trusted not in themselves but in Jesus. Um, and so back to the burning building imagery. Uh, you're on the eighth floor. Your uh, building's on fire. You can't go down the stairs. We've seen many people die that way. And then suddenly a window shatters. A big fireman steps in from a big white bucket suspended by a ladder in the air. Wes Johnson, one of our fire, firemen in our congregation, has showed up to get you. Andy and Jason are down at the bottom blasting the building with, uh, with water. Wes says, uh, come on, let's go. We got Cornelius out. He's down there on the ground. Uh, we got all these other people out. The bucket's good. Let's go. This is salvation through Jesus. Peter and Paul are saying, look at all those people down there on the ground. Why would you go another way when this way clearly works? Success of God's son for salvation. Now the Jews might still be wondering, and you might wonder in your heart, 
But is God the judge really okay with this? Is he really okay with me getting off free just because of Jesus when I've broken the law? And this leads us to James' speech in verse 13. Look at verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Now, James is a big deal in the early church. This is a a different James than the one who was killed earlier in Acts. This is Jesus' brother. Um, He's the leader of the church in Jerusalem, meaning the leader of pretty much all the Jewish Christians. Notice he he calls Peter Simon by his Jewish name. And James gives the decisive speech for this meeting. He does so by connecting what was happening with the Gentiles to God's authoritative word. A compilation of a few different prophetic texts from Amos and Jeremiah that speak of the Gentiles being unfolded into the remnant of God's people with the assumption that when this happens, they would have not been law keepers throughout their life. They would have accrued a lifetime of sins. They would not be circumcised. And yet somehow they would still be saved. Not to mention... In other places in the Old Testament, uh, it speaks of the Messiah being the Gentiles' way in, specifically through him giving himself as a sacrifice for the people. This is from Isaiah. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. By his knowledge shall shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. In another text, It is too light of a thing that you should be my servant and just bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations, the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. So is God, the judge, really okay with this? James' argument is he came up with this himself. We have this on the judge's authority. It wasn't our works from the beginning. It was the Messiah. This is the very plan of the one who will judge us. So back to the burning building. You look down out of the window eight stories, and your friend whispers to you, I don't care what Wes said. I don't know if this ladder and bucket's going to hold us. And the, the fireman, uh, Wes, overhears you and says, let, let me introduce you to our engineer. Engineer comes over and he says, look, look, sir, look, ma'am. We have uh, designed and used these buckets since 1950. I've been a part of working on them, actually. They're pretty flawlessly crafted to carry so much more than the weight of your body. We've tested them with very, very heavy people. This is our specifically designed way of dealing with these situations, and it's never once failed us. So who do you listen to? Your friend or the very engineer who designed and planned your escape? James is saying, go with the engineer. God himself told us about this. We can trust it. And this is important because you have a lot of voices telling you every day how you might fix the problem of sin in your life, the guilt and shame problem, even the judgment of God problem. The sin problem, you might hear, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. Work harder each day. Read this book. Pay a little money here. Guilt and shame problem, as I mentioned earlier, just forgive yourself. Change the law in your head a little bit or just relax it some in your case. The judgment of God problem. 
say the sinner's prayer and you're good. Just make sure that you're in church regularly and you'll be good. Don't do anything especially bad. Or just stop believing in judgment anyways. Hell is so antiquated. The problem is it's probably not eternal suffering, right? Who will you trust with your salvation? These people or the engineer himself? This is the biggest question that you're going to consider in your life. James encourages you to go with the counsel of not only the one who will judge you, but the one who designed your escape. It's the authority of God's word for salvation. My goal is for you leaving knowing for certain that your salvation, for your salvation, you can risk it all on Jesus. And you really actually can. I want you to get in Jesus' arms and have him put you in that bucket and for you to breathe a sigh of relief knowing that with him, you're going to be okay. You're coughing like crazy on smoke. This passage is like an oxygen mask that it gives you. And it's pumping into your lungs calming reminders. Calming reminders like the failure of man's works. You can't, you can't merit it. The overwhelming success of God's son. He did merit it. Look at all the people who were saved on the ground down there. And then the authority of God's word. God himself has come up with this plan and told you about it. You can trust it. God has made a way for us. And it's Jesus. And you're going to be okay with him. Now I want to conclude with this. What role do your works play if not to attain your salvation? What role do they play? Here's the New Testament answer. Your good works are what you are saved for. Truly stepping into the bucket is not the end of your doing good. Like, hey, I'm saved. Now I can sin all I want, right? It's not the end of your doing good. It's actually the real start of your doing good. You were saved from sin and death, remember, that you might live a life that you were made to live by God. Remember what happened to the, the Gentile Cornelius and the others that Paul and Barnabas encountered, that they got in the bucket, put on the oxygen mask, and not only were they saved, but they were reborn, transformed by their union with Jesus, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in them. And then their lives become the evidence that Peter and Paul are using to argue for the way of Jesus. Their good works soon become the fruit of a true and living faith they had in Christ. Likewise, when you get in that bucket with Jesus, the New Testament says you are suddenly transformed too. You become a new creation. Your sin has no dominion over you. Your life begins bearing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And in Christ, you have the privilege of carrying out good works prepared before him for you. Jesus' kingdom of shalom is born in you. And then you become capable of cultivating that kingdom, cultivating shalom, life as it was meant to be in the world now. Basically, you're rescued to become a fireman that can assist in freeing others from their burning buildings of sin and death. That's what you're saved for. And your good works have one other purpose too, a second purpose. When you stand before Jesus at the last day to give an account of your life at the judgment, you will be saved by being in the bucket with him, risking it all on the judge himself. But Jesus will confirm your bucket seat, your access to him, to his cross, his grace, his sacrifice, his benefits. He'll confirm all that by the faith you have. You're saved through faith. But how will he know that you have a living faith? 
James, the, the very one in this passage actually, says, Jesus will know of your living faith largely by the good works done in your life, which were the evidence of that faith. So the good works are what you're saved for. They're your fruit. And they are also the inevitable result of your salvation. Therefore, the evidence of it. So here's the question. Do you want to be delivered from your sin, your guilt, your shame, and the judgment of God? Do you want heaven to be loved by God fully, to be welcomed in? And do you also really want to do good stuff in your life? Do you want good works? If so, risk it all on Jesus. Give up your self-salvation attempts. Get in that bucket. I just want to name that this is confusing theological stuff, good works versus faith in Christ. It can be hard to articulate well and even harder to live well. So if you have any questions or wrestlings with any of this, let's talk about it. Amen? Amen.